Hello, everyone. Thank you for taking some time to listen to this message due to some technical difficulties. I'm re-recording this message to make it available to you. Uh, This message kicks off our summer message series through the book of Colossians. I invite you to grab your Bible and turn there to chapter 1. Over the past few months, Ian Graham, who's our worship and youth pastor, Greg Hubbard, who serves on the leadership team here at PCC, and he also works for the Orchard Group, which is a church planning organization focused primarily here in the Northeast. The three of us have been meeting together, spending time in prayer and thought and planning and preparing a tag team approach to preach through the book of Colossians, a series that we've titled Running on Empty. And what we're encouraging and challenging everyone to do is to join us in committing to reading through the book of Colossians every week. Now, many of you, having heard that, you may be grabbing your Bibles and checking out how long the book is. So let me help you with that. The book consists of four chapters, totaling just 95 verses. But here's the deal. Uh, We really don't want you just to read the words on the page so you can check it off your list and do your religious duty. We desire for this community of believers, for anyone listening here, to allow the words of Paul to begin to saturate our lives, to allow the truth in God's word to not only affect us individually, but as a community of believers. And what we want to encourage you to do as you read through the letter to the church at Colossae is to focus on the fullness of Christ, to focus on how Paul says, as we allow Christ to fill us, then we are no longer running on empty, but instead we are filled with the fullness of Christ. I like what N.T. Wright said about Colossians. He said, the opening of the letter serves equally well as an opening to everyone who reads it today. Our prayer should be that through reading and praying our way through it, the same grace and peace will reach out and embrace us too. Too often I think we're guilty of reading a book of the Bible and thinking, well, that was good for them, but it really has no significant uh, relevance in my life. But it's just not the case. And over the next several weeks, we hope that you will join with us And that you will allow Christ to move in your life as we're asking him to move in our lives. To move us from running on empty to a full life. So we're going to jump into Colossians chapter 1, the first eight verses. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father, verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is producing fruit and growing just as it it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of things that are in this text that that can really jump out and come alive and can make an impact. But I think in order for it to make a greater impact, we need to understand a little bit of the background information. For instance, the author is Paul. Who is he? And what do we know about him? Well, uh, we know that he wasn't always called by his Greek name, Paul. We are first introduced to him when he is called Saul. He hails from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee, and he was trained by the famous rabbi Gamaliel. 
as Saul, he was best known for his persecution of the church and for doing a good job of arresting or killing people who were talking about Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we find Saul giving approval to the death of Stephen, who was proclaiming Christ. Saul was on the fast track, uh, and, and in many ways, he was already considered one of the top Pharisees. His credentials were flawless. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, in the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. In his area of focus, he was the man. And on one of his trips to Damascus to seek out to either kill or arrest Christians, everything changes. He has an encounter with the risen Christ. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. And there you will find Jesus say this about Saul. Jesus says, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Shortly after his encounter with Christ, he changes his name to Paul and he spends the rest of his life telling people about Jesus. His focus is on the Gentiles and that would include you and me. He, he takes three extensive missionary journeys. He plants churches as he goes. He writes 13 of our 27 books of the New Testament and his influence, his writing, his understanding of who Christ is and and who God is, is still impacting people all around the world. But Paul doesn't do all of this on his own. In verse 1, we see that Timothy is with him. We know from chapter 4 that others, like Epaphras and Mark and Demas and Luke and others, are also there with him in some capacity. Paul wrote letters to churches and some individuals as well. In this book, Colossians, the audience is a young church in the town of Colossae. Now, the town of Colossae is, is a town situated 100 miles east of Ephesus in the Lycus Valley of Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey. It was on a major trade route going from the western coast to the eastern interior. Colossae had been a, a very important city due to its fertile farmland and prized wool. And in fact, at one point, it was called a populous city, wealthy and large. But its importance and significance had been greatly diminished by the first century A.D., the town was near two other significant cities, Heriopolis, which was located 13 miles away, and Laodicea, which was 10 miles away. It was seen as a city on the decline. While it was near two cities that were thriving, the best days were behind them, and they were simply trying to hold on. And one of the things that's interesting about Paul writing this letter is the fact that Paul never went there. There's never a record of Paul ever arriving in Colossae, and yet he's writing to the church there. This is because Epaphras, Epaphras was the one who planted the church in Colossae as well as the two other churches, uh, one in Heriopolis and one in Laodicea. Uh, Epaphras was converted and, and trained by Paul in Ephesus and then set out to plant churches, which is what he did. It was thought that, that when Epaphras came to Paul and, and told him what was going on in the church at Colossae, that Paul wrote a letter to the church and thus we have the book of Colossians. And the book demonstrates how Paul had a heart for people. His desire was for people to know Christ and to be filled with Christ. He desired for people to discover and experience the life-changing love of Christ in very real, transforming ways. But maybe the most significant thing we know about Paul is that his approach to people, even people he had never met, his approach is prayer. Look again at verse 3. He says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul is praying for these people, people he'd never met, Gentile people who have at least come into a basic understanding of, of Christ and he wants to encourage them and challenge them in their faith. The basic theme of Colossians is the completeness, the adequacy, the fullness of God through Christ 
contrasted that with the emptiness of mere human philosophy. We see this theme throughout the book. Paul makes his case for Christianity by drawing attention to the fullness of God, especially in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we see Christ in his image, that he's the creator, the sustainer, the head of the church, the first resurrected, fullness of deity in bodily form. We also see that in chapter 2. Jesus is our reconciler, which means we are made right with God through Christ. We are made full in Christ. He says that in chapter 2. Also in chapter 2, he talks about the deceptiveness and emptiness of mere human philosophy. How it's hollow in verse 18 and it's lacking power in verse 23. In this letter to the church, Paul wanted to either address some things that were already threatening this young group of believers or point point out to them some of the things that may look spiritual, they may look attractive, but they're not Christ. And so he reminds them of who Christ really is and focuses on the fullness, the completeness that is available through God's Son, Jesus Christ. A.T. Robertson calls Colossians a full-length portrait of Christ. Through Paul's writing, we see Jesus. We see his fullness. We see how in our daily life as individuals and as a community of believers, if we are running on empty, the way we become filled is not through the things of this world, even though they may be attractive and even though they may seem spiritual, but it's only through Christ. So for the remainder of this message, I'd like to look at three characteristics described by Paul which are to be evident in our lives as we seek to experience the fullness of Christ. We find these characteristics in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. The text reads this, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Hopefully you heard them there. Let's go through them. The first one is faith. When we hear the word faith, uh, usually we go to belief. That's what we think about first. And while that's true, when the Bible talks about faith, especially in the context of Colossians, it means so much more than just an intellectual engagement or understanding of the truth. It really has a lot to do with trust. You know, when our children were younger and we were trying to teach them how to swim, we did what all parents do. We stand our child on the edge of the pool and we say, hey, jump to me, trying to get them over their fear of the water. And as a dad, I would say, hey, I'll catch you. Trust me. And what is interesting to me is how our children each reacted to this scenario in different ways. Carissa would check things out, evaluate the situation, and then she would jump. Caitlin, she wouldn't even think twice. Often she would jump with wild abandon whether I was ready or not. Cale, he was more hesitant. He he took a little more convincing. But after the first jump, it became easier. And with each subsequent jump, he became less hesitant. And it was a fun experience for him until he absolutely wore me out. Paul is describing a faith that includes us trusting in Christ, a pattern you will find throughout the book. You see, faith is not static. It includes that we will take action. It's just like jumping into the water from the edge of the pool. The more we trust and put our action to, we put action to our belief, we will become less hesitant and experience more as we trust him more. It'll become what we do because it's fun and we understand that he's there for us because we trust him. In verse 7, he refers to Epaphras as a faithful minister, someone who is moving and active and working for the kingdom and trusting God. You know, one of the dangers of our faith becoming static is that we allow the monotony of our daily lives and responsibilities to take the place of the joy and the anticipation of walking each day with Christ. And this is something that's not only true in our individual lives, but in the life of the church. And it begs the question, are we as a church 
walking in faith and trusting God with our mission and our vision, as a community of believers and as individuals, we are to trust Jesus as our Savior, to live in the reality that he did not look past sin, but he addressed sin, both present and future. And he died so that we can walk in freedom and stand confidently before him, to have faith that he will restore all things. We need to believe that. One day, all the wrongs of the world will be made right. The injustice, the hunger, the oppression, the sickness, all those things will be made, made uh, no more. They'll be gone. But here's the part we often miss. Because of our faith, because of our trust in him, we believe his kingdom is in the process of restoring his creation right now. And we're called to be a part of his restoration project. It's not just a future hope, but a current reality. God is working to restore all things, restore all things back unto himself. We are to trust that Jesus is our provider, that he's the healer of broken relationships. He speaks to us through his words as we read through the scriptures. And he listens, he cares, he will never leave us or forsake us. He picks us up when we fall. Now, I personally strive to have this type of faith, this type of trust. And I pray that we, as a community of believers, that that anyone listening to this, that, that you will have it as well. And here is where we have to look ourselves in the mirror and ask the question, do we demonstrate an honest, real, bold trust and faith in Jesus? Can you point to areas or even one area in your life where your faith in Jesus is changing the way you live? How it's changing the way you work or changing the way you see sin, changing your priorities, changing the way you relate to your spouse or to your children, changing the way you spend your time and and your money and your energy. The reality is this, if the gospel message of Christ is taking root in your life, there's going to be some visible evidence of that fact. And if there isn't any visible evidence, then we really need to get real honest with ourselves before God and ask the question, why? Paul says that if we're to be filled with Christ, we need faith. That's where he starts. He doesn't stop there. He also talks about love. When you have faith in Jesus Christ and you live your life demonstrating your trust in him, it will affect the way you love. Often when we think of love in the Bible, what do we usually think of? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, of course, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, all those things. And while all those are accurate attributes of love, not only does Paul talk about love here in chapter 1, but in a few weeks, you're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, where Paul refers to love as having compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He, He also tells us that love involves forgiving one another which is interesting because it at least implies that we're going to do things that are going to require us to forgive each other. As Greg, Ian, and I were talking about these three characteristics, we firmly believe that love is one of the things that the people here at PCC do pretty well. There are a lot of churches that don't have people hanging out 45 minutes to an hour after church at the end, you know, after church, simply because they just want to hang out and be with one another. I believe that when we commit to loving each other, We are positioning ourselves to grow in the fullness of Christ. But how are we doing when it comes to expressing or demonstrating love to those outside of the circle? What about the people who come into our community of believers and and they're not hanging out after the service? What about those people that aren't in your inner circle at work or at school or wherever you are? One of the things I hear time and time again is how people feel uh, welcomed when they first attend uh, the church here at PCC. And that's a great testimony to what We're doing as individuals and and as a church, but too often those same people stop attending after a few weeks because they haven't made a connection. You know, in verse 8, Paul writes how the Holy Spirit gives us a deep love for one another, meaning that 
another evidence of that God is alive and is at work in us is our love for others. And if we don't find our hearts growing in the love for the body of Christ, for others, for people outside of our circle, then the argument could be made that the gospel is really not penetrating our hearts. But when we love others and we pour out his love on others, it allows us to be filled with Christ and it has the power to change lives. Don't underestimate what love can do in someone's life. The third characteristic is hope. Paul writes that faith and love come from the hope that we have through Jesus. And to really understand what Paul's saying to the church at Colossae, you have to understand what was happening in Rome. When Paul writes this letter, the Roman Empire is near its pinnacle of its existence. Roman rule stretched nearly 4,200 miles and reigned for almost 1,500 years. Compare that to the current United States, which is 3,300 miles wide and just celebrated its 238th year of independence. You know, Rome was big. It was dominant. It transformed the ancient world. Emperor Constantine of Rome was a great warrior who brought Christianity to the empire. He said, under God's watch, we will conquer and never fail. And the reality is the Gentile people were looking to Rome as their hope and as their salvation. And as Paul writes this letter to the Gentile church at Colossae, he's telling the believers there, Rome is not your hope. And from our vantage point in history, we can see that Paul was correct. Rome could not offer true hope. Only Jesus can do that. Rome cannot bring fulfillment. It's only through Christ. And I think one of the dangers we have to guard against is thinking that this news outlet or this media reporter, this political party or or idea or whatever is where we place our hope and our confidence. When we start to put our hope in this political party or that person or this program or that initiative, it's empty and it's hollow and it lacks power. We can't put our hope in even the United States because it's not going to bring fulfillment. It's only through Christ. You know, sometimes where we place our hope is a little more subtle. We place our hope in, in our career or in our lifestyle and in success or beauty or in education or our earning power, in our status or in a boyfriend or girlfriend or even in your spouse. And if you want to know where you really put your hope, look at where you put your treasure. Look at what you value the most. A great indicator of where you place your hope is to simply evaluate where you invest the bulk of your time, your effort, and your finances. I think it's important that as we talk about hope that we remember that, yes, it does mean having a hope that someday we will spend eternity with Jesus in heaven, but it's more than that. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus is reigning, that God himself is being present among us. Yes, it is a future that God will bring us to, but if Jesus is actually king, which I believe he is, and if we're living for him right now, which I believe we should, what would our lives, what would our church look like? You know, it's my desire that you will wrestle with that in your life. You know, I don't have claim to have all the answers as to what this means for you. But here's what I believe to be true. Only Christ can fill the deepest longing of your heart. And only he can give your life true meaning and true purpose. And one of the reasons I believe we don't grow in our faith, and one of the reasons we plateau and become comfortable and content, is because we don't live in the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. You see, Christ went to the cross to secure your hope. He went to the cross so you could see love. He went to the cross to give us faith and trust in him. And we're motivated to live our lives for him because of what he has already done, because of what he is doing, and what he will continue to do in our lives. And so here's my challenge as we wrap up week one. 
would you consider your story? What's your story? How is your life changing? How are you becoming more like Christ? How does your story fit in with all the other stories around you? Because here's the struggle. What do we do if we come to the end of this series and we don't really see any change in our lives? If we see a lack of peace and joy and love or passion for Jesus or compassion for another, our neighbor or generosity with our time and uh, with our resources, what, what do we do then if those things don't happen? Well, the tendency will be to do one of two things. Either we will become discouraged and give up and say, well, you know, I just can't do it, I'm a failure. Or we will try to self-manufacture change. We will try harder and attempt to get rid of old habits and bad habits and be a better person. But, but here's the thing. Unless our hearts are being transformed by Christ, it's not going to stick. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, All over the world this gospel is producing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. We need to move from merely hearing the word to understanding and acting on the word. We need to let the message of Christ wow us, captivate us, grow in us, transform us. And that will only happen if we're willing to stop running on empty and allow God to fill us up. Thanks for taking this journey with us. Together, I truly believe we can stop running on empty and allow Christ to fill the void. As always, if you have any questions, if you want to talk to someone, we'd love to have that opportunity. Feel free to get in touch with us. Thanks for listening.